2: Well, no, I just want to listen to that whole song. But we also have a really good show that we're going to do, uh, and so that will take precedence. Yeah, we're going to talk about kitchen tools today, which we started in one place. And the more that we prepared for the show, we realized just how much emotion and nostalgia, um, and, and serendipity is probably included uh, in in the tools that we possess. Uh, what winds up in those drawers in our kitchen, uh, often things we couldn't even enumerate. Uh, joining us here for the first segment, uh, David Montgomery, a senior data journalist at UGov, and a history podcaster. Uh, Megan Elias, who's been with us before, uh, is a historian, a director of the Food Studies Program and associate professor at Boston University, author of five books, including A History of Lunch, which I feel like we should have done a show about that book when it came out. But you know, there's still time. Um, all right. So, um, let's get going here. And to get going, um, so David Montgomery, you're kind of responsible for us being on the toboggan that we're on right now. Uh, this is something that uh, popped up, I think, in the Washington Post. You had done—you uh, sort of commissioned, I guess, a YouGov study of a 1,000 U.S. adults at what kind of, about what kind of kitchen tools they have. I guess the springboard from the for this was you've got a friend who doesn't have a, any steak knives, doesn't even have one steak knife. It was he never, never opened a checking account. They didn't give him steak knives. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to just sort of mention one or two of the really surprising or interesting or kind of grabby things that came out of the study?
1: Uh, sure. Thanks, Colin. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I... – came out of a conversation having with a friend who didn't own any steak knives and more to the point thought that was totally normal that they didn't that they didn't own any steak knives uh fortunately i work for a polling company and was able to test that uh in a few days as uh, so we ran a poll and found that in fact 86 percent of americans say that uh, they have steak knives in their kitchen which seems about right to me uh about 11 percent said they don't own steak knives and a couple of people weren't really sure
2: Right. Uh, and there there was like almost nothing that everybody has, right? Uh, there's nothing that
1: was literally at 100%, although in polling, you very rarely get actually up to 100%. Uh, there's just, it's very hard to get absolute unanimity on on this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I mean, there were people out there who are, you know, 22-year-olds just getting started at their household, or people who just moved, or well, there's also the reasons why someone might not have any particular kitchen utensil, but there were some utensils that were nearly ubiquitous. If you go into any random kitchen, you can be pretty confident they're going to have at least a, one measuring cup or a can opener or a spatula. Those are all uh, more than 90% of people said that they had those in their kitchens.
2: Um. Yeah, and you know the the can opener thing is interesting. Maybe Megan, I'll bring you in on this too. Although I this isn't anything that I would expect anybody to necessarily know about. But as I was getting ready for this show, Megan, I discovered there's a theory anyway, and some reporting to go along with it that millennials and Generation Z people actually, in some cases, don't have can openers, don't even necessarily know how to use a can opener because. Pretty much everything they buy these days have the, has these kind of ring top things. I mean, it's not a universal thing, but uh, but there actually were uh, a, there is a generation coming along. It's sort of like tying your shoes or something. There's a generation <laughs> coming along that won't be opening cans.
0: That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean, the technology has moved along. If you can open your can without um, having an extra implement, that's that's certainly much much easier. And so you're you'll be more likely to use cans. I think there's just a wider range of packaging too. There's a lot more pouches <laughs> than yes. there used to be, right? Just tear open things.
2: I think the pouches, I mean, one theory about the pouches is that they kind of exist because <laughs> uh-huh. this particular generation right. doesn't want to open cans for whatever reason. Uh, so, yeah, you get the tunas in the pouches and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, David, an, a, a surprising negative finding uh, was that 25 percent of people don't have a chef's knife. Do you want to say something about that?
1: That was one of the things that surprised me a little bit. Uh, I just sort of always assumed that at least one big chef's knife is sort of a staple for uh, cooking, even speaking as a fairly casual cook myself. uh, I I cook a a fair amount, but not religiously or uh, collecting cookbooks or anything like that. And I've always had a steak knife as sort of thing doesn't take up much space and is very useful when you do. Uh, I will say just going back a bit, we did uh, break down the data by age and Ah, uh, people under forty-five were less likely to own can openers. Although mm-hmm. people under forty-five were less likely to own almost every single utensil we pulled about, <laughs> except for some newer, trendier uh, utensils. So uh, the can opener is not abnormally an abnormally large difference in terms of age.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, uh, Megan, to that point, I I think kitchen tools are unusual. I mean, one reason for the motliness, the almost kind of random assortment of, of kitchen tools, is it's like, it's a little bit different from tool tools. Like I think, oh, yeah. you know, if you're going to buy yeah. t- you buy tools, you, you might even buy a set of tools to begin with. And there's some, th- sometimes, you know, you got somebody who's launching from home and you can buy them a set of pots and pans or something that's all kind of matched together. But really the stuff that we acquire, we acquire in a pretty haphazard way.
0: Yeah, I think it's re- it's going to be really specific to cultural background too. Things that will seem totally necessary in some households just will will never be heard of in other households too, and also of taste and preference and time. So I think, um, you know, our kitchen, our kitchen equipments really are a little mini autobiography in the way that like CD cases used to be. Um, you can tell a lot about how, where people want to spend their time, what kinds of things they enjoy um, and how competent they feel as well, right?
2: Right, and and um, David, you did find that eighty more than eighty percent of respondents to this YouGov poll uh, in their kitchens had steak knives, cutting boards, whisks, and peelers. Those seem to be kind of the you know really kind of basic things that that really do make sense. I don't know if you explored. And I really believe this is one of the American divides, a divide that we haven't really talked about very much. But I think it is something that really does cleave the populace into two different sections, (laughs) the plastic versus wooden cutting board people. Um, David, I I think cutting boards in in your poll were just treated as cutting boards, right? Yeah, we did not uh,
1: ask about the the type of cutting board, although, as they say— opportunity for further research.
2: Right. But, Megan, that is like a – like, I'm a wooden cutting board kind of person. I'm the cook in my house, and if you're a cook, you kind of want that wooden cutting board. The person who's concerned about hygiene, things going through the dishwasher, the person who would probably put the dog in the dishwasher if the dog would fit in the dishwasher, that person who will remain nameless in my life wants plastic <laughs> cutting boards. But uh, your thoughts, please.
0: Yes. I think that that is a very important divide, and it's it has a lot to do with the sense of um, – sort of how much you're thinking about your food as material rather than, um, you know, something, something pleasurable, right? So is it, if you have a, a wooden cutting board, you're interested in textures, you're interested in this kind of, um, this warmth, I guess, that you get from a wooden cutting board that you're not going to get from um, a plastic cutting board. Of course, wooden cutting boards tend to be a little bit more expensive too. So it, it is slightly, you know, just a teeny tiny bit of status item over the, um over the plastic ones. But we do, you know, at the, the professional kitchen where I work at Boston University, we do have plastic cutting boards.
2: Well, I mean, there's there's a place for both of them. Um, and wooden cutting boards, you got to oil them and all this kind of stuff, or at least theoretically you've got to oil. Right. Uh, <laughs> they take a little bit more care and all that kind of stuff. And there is, I don't know, I cooked half a chicken last night and just putting it down on a pl- hot, the hot chicken onto the plastic cutting board, that didn't feel right. I had to get out a wood one. Um, so, David, also <laughs> in the study, there were some things that are present um, – in less than half of the kitchens of, resp- uh, of your respondents, uh, those were chopsticks, garlic presses, juicers, zesters, mandolins, and ricers. I, I know Megan is going to want to talk about ricers, but David, did you have any particular takeaway that that you had from that? I think there's there's sort of two things
1: going on there. I, I, chopsticks are sort of their own thing. that uh, You have chopsticks for ch- eating uh, normally East Asian cuisine, uh, which has, of course, become much more popular in the past decades. It's not surprising that younger households were much more likely to own chopsticks uh, than uh, uh, older households were. The others are more sort of newer specialty uh, food prep items, often that uh, are, are for more specialized purposes, have been become popular more recently. Uh, those were much more likely to be owned by by younger people, by people who uh, said that they were great cooks. Uh, which again all, makes sense that you know if if you don't care much about cooking or you're uh, then you might not uh, acquire some of these specialty tools and you might just work with the basic stuff that you need to cook ninety five percent of all your meals. But if you're really into cooking, then you might start accumulating the, all these various specialty equipment to fill out your kitchen for the those specialty
2: recipes. Yeah, I mean, Megan, I was a little surprised that Ricer's scared scored very highly at Me all. Too. But but but, but yeah. say why? Say why that's surprising?
0: Well, there it, it's an older technology that I think has been superseded by other things by um, uh, by immersion blenders, definitely. Right? I know a lot of people don't want to make their mashed potatoes in a um, in a food processor, but an immersion blender can get um, some of the same texture. And also, I think there's been a little bit of a shift towards more. Um, uh, chunky mashed potatoes being more, more flavored, right? Yeah. So the ricer seems like a very odd thing. It's also incredibly hard to clean. I used to have one and I got rid of it because I couldn't I just couldn't stand <laughs> the way the starch built up in it. Yeah. Um so I was really intrigued. I felt that there's probably a TikTok trend I have missed that explains their presence at all.
2: Right. And you know, to David's other point, I think the chopstick thing is probably, you know, a little bit age-dependent. I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of people just get chopsticks. For the takeout that they're going to eat, uh, the chopstick—the right. the relationship with those chopsticks is a, a fairly casual uh, one uh, that kind of ends when the meal ends. But you know, I, I have at times in my life, I think, owned kind of nicer permanent chopsticks. Uh, obviously, it's going to be ethically dependent, but uh, I think he's yeah. right, probably that it's age dependent.
0: I think so. I've also lately seen more recipes that ask you to stir something with chopsticks. So, kind of assuming you have chopsticks in your house and then you stir your your batter. So it has nothing to do with East Asian cuisine at all. It's just, we think you have this thing and it could be useful for the, the thing we need to do right now.
2: So David, you, you said something before about people who uh, identify themselves as great cooks. And this mm-hmm. is an interesting part of your study. It, it, there is a maybe a little bit of a dunning Kruger effect that we might be seeing here for people just tuning in dunning Kruger is kind of fancy for overconfidence my favorite one of those is that uh something like seventy five percent of French men rate themselves as better than average lovers um with like things like you know just kind of can't really be possible but so David f- tell us a little bit about how people assessed their cooking skills
1: yeah we wanted to try to get a sense of uh at some level of Uh, what the difference was between people who are just really enthusiastic cooks and what they own and uh, what people who are not really enthusiastic cooks might own. And the way we did that was we asked people to assess their cooking skills. And uh, 21% of Americans described themselves as great cooks from our multiple choice question. Uh, 46% said they were good cooks. 25% said they were okay cooks. 4% said they were bad cooks. And 3% said they were terrible. (laughs) Uh, that, that probably underestimates a little bit uh, on the lower end, I'd, I'd guess. But uh, we didn't administer a uh, a knowledge test or anything like that. Uh, this is purely what people say they are as good cooks. And you can derive some in- interesting uh, insights from that, but it's not necessarily a reflection of actual skill.
2: So I think Megan may want to cross-examine you on uh, on some of the crosstabs. Sure. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's so... It's really, really interesting that so many people think they're good or great. And I think that's really um, a contemporary phenomenon that... If we'd asked people 50 years ago, not many people would have said that they were either good or great. Um, most people doing the cooking would have been women and they would have thought of themselves as just having to do that work um, rather than having particular skill or, or really needing a special skill. So I, I feel um, it's it's a good sign <laughs> that so many people feel that they are good and that it's, it's worth saying. You know that it's um, it's become part of somebody's identity that they're that they're good or even great um, that they spend time thinking about food and how to prepare it um, in an interesting way.
2: But I think it's also interesting. Just I, I you know, there's got to be some kind of gender difference here. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think, it, so. <laughs> and I, I think it's <laughs> it think I think male self valorizing is probably you know maybe one of the things Megan that might yeah. be driving this.
0: Yeah, I would. I would. Be surprised if the people who said they were great cooks were not mostly male, because it's it's again, it's something that, um, you know, that most of the famous chefs, most of the well-known and well-paid chefs are male. So it's it's a a sort of a status thing for men less than it is for women who are just sort of expected to get along, you know, get on with it with cooking.
1: Well, I've got some answers for you on that. Uh, We do have crosstabs. Uh, and women were actually more likely than men to say they were great cooks. Uh, oh, 25% wonderful. of female respondents said they were great cooks versus 17% of men. Wow. Uh, the it's big
0: funny.
1: difference is that men were more likely to say they were bad or terrible cooks.
0: Oh, uh, 9% yeah.
1: of men said they were either bad or terrible versus 4% of women.
0: Interesting. I'm in that 4%, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. So that's really nice to see that, the, that there's sort of gender um, equity up there um, in the people who think of themselves as really great. Um, And not surprising, I think, that men would would sort of be okay identifying themselves as bad cooks because they don't kind of lose any face through that.
1: Yeah, men were also more likely to say they were just okay cooks, 28% Mm -hmm. to 22% on that. Uh, um
2: but and i think david i, I assume that all of this the self evaluation correlates pretty well with ownership of kitchen tools right if you think you're a good cook a better than average cook maybe even a great cook you're going there probably are going to be fewer gaps in terms of what you have at your disposal for for
1: every single utensil we asked about people who described themselves as a great cook were more likely to own it than people who did not uh for uh, people who said they were not great cooks, 29% owned risers compared to 45% of so- self-described great cooks. Steak knives, uh, 84% of not great cooks said they owned them against 95% of great cooks.
2: And, and did you find out things about p- things that people own, but don't use? Cause I think that's an interesting category. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: yes, we did ask about that. Uh, there were, uh, See if I can get that uh, data up in front of me uh, for the moment. Uh, There were uh, a fair number of tools that uh, people owned but didn't use. Uh,
2: I don't know. Well, we could actually, Megan and I could probably jump in on this a little bit. I mean, first of all, there are things, uh, Megan, I think one thing that happens is you're looking at the New York Times cooking section or something, and Sam Sifton or somebody says, well, you're going to need a mandolin for this, you know? And, you think,
0: and then you put yeah, it away, right? You right. close that page. <laughs>
2: yes. I mean, yeah. I definitely own some tools that I bought because one recipe told me I needed it. And I thought, well, if I need it for that, I'll probably need it for other things. Sure, I'll get it. Uh, and it just doesn't really. And then they just sit in there gathering dust or, or because it just it sort of looked good at a particular moment. Or, Megan, I think cooks go through phases, too. You go through phases oh, maybe yeah. where you're using a lot of lemon zest for whatever reason.
0: Right and then, you know there's so many fashions in in cooking that you'll um you know so, yeah suddenly everyone will need to go out and get a zester because all the recipes say put a little lemon zest on it or um you know that sometimes the tool will follow the trend and sometimes the the trend will um come from the tool right if the tool suddenly exists people will start cooking with it like the mm. spiralizer thing so. um and if it do, you know if, if it's something that there's a new trend in a restaurant then People will pick that up and want to take it home and they'll need they'll need the equipment. Um, and then and then the trend passes or it turns out it's not that easy or it's difficult to clean or, or you know, whatever it is or too expensive. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So and I've got the vid up in front of me now. Sure. Uh, I have a frankly abhorrent number of tabs in my browser. <laughs> uh, the joys of live radio. Uh, uh, the spatula uh, led in terms of the uh, tool that people were most likely to both own and frequently use, uh, mm-hmm. followed by the cutting board. Uh, both uh, 64% said they own and frequently used a spatula. Uh, the rolling pin uh, topped the list of Ooh. things that people said they own but never use.
0: Oh, so sad. <laughs> <laughs> All those unmade pies. Right. Um, but I think chop- you can tell chopsticks were, were also h- high on that
1: list as well,
2: and juicers. Ah. Yeah. Um, so, David, last question. We're going to go to a break right now. Um, are you all done with this or are you going to uh, – has this piqued your interest? Do you want to know more about food and kitchens and stuff like that? I think that there's what, – what
1: this showed is it's clearly a lot of interest in this topic, and those are the sort of things that we tend to come back to. We don't know exactly what oh, follow-up great. questions we're going to ask, but uh, maybe we'll try to find some way to uh, more rigorously test uh, people's cooking skills in uh, a survey format. All right. I'm oh, I'd sure. love
0: to help. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I was going to suggest that exact thing, Megan. I think you're, you you ought to be on his speed dial. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back with more of Megan. We're going to tell you, uh, sort of share with you the stories of some of our listeners about stuff that they own. Thanks to David Montgomery, Senior Data Journalist at UGov.
3: It must be.
2: All right, still with us for a conversation about uh, kitchen tools, Megan Elias, a historian, director of the Food Studies Program and associate professor at Boston University, author of, I think, five books uh, with uh, another one on the way. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the history of kitchens and kitchen tools. It's also going to spill a little bit uh, into the C segment. Um, but, uh, Meg, but Megan, I think, um, as you point out, some of the, one of the booms uh, is... Well, we could even go back and say there was a time where an awful lot of households, if they had servants and they didn't really know what any kitchen tools were, if you watch <laughs> up, upstairs, downstairs, who knows? It's going on downstairs. Right. Um, the, I think post World War II, in particular, there's a time when the kind of the American kitchen becomes the province, probably of the wife mostly, and there's a, a bigger boom in just like wanting certain things.
0: Yes, yes, a post-war boom in marketing. Um, domestic goods, kitchen tools of all kinds, and using technologies that have been developed, um, you know, sort of for, not exactly like for the war, but around war industries and putting those to work um, in American kitchens. And so there's, there's, um, you know, more disposable income uh, in the post-war boom. And um, housewives look like a great market because they're sort of stuck at home and they need Um, things that will make their life seem like it's exciting and like it's, it's sort of part of the modern world. So you get to see lots more gadgets and that's I think when we begin to expect that there will always be something new that can make your cooking even better and more beautiful and make your family love you more.
2: I think there's also, uh, not too long after that, we start to watch cooking shows on television. Um, yes. We meet somebody yes. named Julia Child, but, right. you know, there's the galloping gourmet and all this kind of stuff. And you'd see somebody use a thing. Uh, exactly. Pretty pretty easy to get them to want to get the thing, right?
0: Right. And to, to be like those people, those sort of glamorous people. And Julia Child's really interesting because her all of her equipment, what she calls the battery de cuisine, is really uh, sort of against that um, that push for progress. It's all... Kind of much more old-fashioned looking at least, lots of copper pots which um, take a lot of a lot of care, you have to have them re- re-lined every couple of years, um, and so she's, she's giving people at the same time that you know Westinghouse is giving them the latest and greatest, she's giving them this sort of old traditional, um, and you know the truth is that people mixed up the old and the new in their kitchens, but they've, they've got kind of two fantasies going at the same time, that they can be like a a wonderful, you know, traditional French chef and that they can also be, you know, Mrs. Jetson. So the two things are happening simultaneously in American kitchens.
2: All right. So um, in order to kind of um, uh, pique Megan's interest even more, uh, I reached out to some people on social media or to everybody on social media and asked them, (laughs) what what do they have and what is it? And I'm going to read these. And we thought we would set them to music because there's there's something, there's a sort of poetry to them. So Kat, yes, A1, please. Shirley, am I a wannabe if I want marrow spoons or a duck press? Lorna, most of what comes my way ends up in my I-don't-know-what-in-the-world-it-even-is drawer. Rose, I love sporks. Teresa, Mm -hmm. I have a really small whisk that is rarely used. I have it because it reminds me of my dad. My mother had just passed away when we moved to Connecticut, and my father insisted on making me breakfast, scrambled eggs, every morning before i left for school he beat the eggs in an on the rocks glass he was a martini on the rocks with a twist kind of guy with that whisk it was one of his first kitchen tool purchases lake como dave i just got my wife for christmas at her request a super duper rolling pin it's adjustable for three discrete thicknesses of crust i earnestly hope i never give her cause to hit me with it tracy I swear by my onion goggles. Karen, how did I live without this immersion blender? Kate, I have a bamboo spork only about two and a half inches long that I keep in my handbag. It comes in handy. Jude, I'm at the age where if I come across some weird tool or utensil that was in my childhood kitchen, I buy it for the nostalgic feels. Like this jar opener, I have practically zero use for it, but it kind of... It was a kind of 60s fidget spinner, what with the metal gears and all, so I bought one to have around. June, fantastic gift items, stainless steel mesh gloves for grating or using a mandoline. Natasha, we have tiny crab mallets for bashing crabs. Joe, I spent years looking for a vegetable peeler with a brush on the back. My grandparents always had one, and I found the brush so useful that I was surprised that my father-in-law, who was in plastics manufacturing, which he went into before the graduate, had no idea what I was describing. I finally found one, but it was much bigger and bulkier than my grandparents. In fact, why does it seem as if all kitchen utensils nowadays have big, chunky handles that don't fit nicely in the drawer? All right, I'm going to stop there, although I've got like eight more of them. but um, It's y- beautiful.
0: <laughs> Isn't oh, it? I, uh, I could listen to it forever. There's so much going on there, yes. All the nostalgia. So I think some people do keep tools around because they knew and loved the hands that first used them. And yes. just to see the object, just to call that person back into, not even just sort of to memory, but into action, right? The a beautiful story of the woman with the, whose father whisked up her... Um, her breakfast in the little tiny glass with a tiny whisk, because that was all all he knew about um, in the beginning of his sort of single parenthood. That's lovely. So just to think about like, when we think about Kitchen Tools of people that we knew, it's the work that they did sort of for us and caring for us. So I can see how nostalgia is a, um, a big part of, of Kitchen Tool, uh, you know, archiving. Um, and I think to the the woman who was asking about if she was a wannabe because she wanted a duck press. I think yeah, absolutely, right. <laughs> um, but is there anything wrong with that, right? Why why is it so wrong to want to be um, the kind of person who uses a duck press, right? And we always we always when we buy these gadgets, it's like this moment of um, of commitment, right? We're we're going to become that person. We're going to use the tool. Our life will be different because we're suddenly pressing ducks, right? And and we'll find out what that what that's like. Um, and it doesn't always pan out, but it's a small risk. And that's the thing. If it's unless it's like a, you know, a stand mixer or um, a new dishwasher, right? It's it's all um, kind of small risks, small adventures.
2: Yeah, no, but I think one thing that you said I think was was really important. Uh, pretty much the first thing you said. I mean, because. Food and nurturing and parenting and love and all those things are kind of mixed up together. And yes, that story about the father with the martini uh, a glass, rocks glass. And I mean, that's somebody trying to do a job that he didn't necessarily know how to do exactly the right way. But his wife passed on and he wants, loves his daughter. And I mean, you, you can't <laughs> there's a way you can't even be rational about something like that. Yeah. It just is very emotional.
0: Yes. Yeah. You don't want him ever to have to change, right? Nobody should come and say, you need a bigger whisk and a bigger bowl, right? He should just always know that that was the right thing to do.
2: You know, one that I didn't read to you, but I think it's interesting too, because of the philosophy here. This is Joy. She says, I use my hand egg beater to whip cream instead of the electric kind. I'm told I'll live longer if I do simple tasks to engage my brain and muscles. Also, I earn my whipped cream. There is something about like right. super easy modern things. That's a little bit troubling, Right.
0: Yes. I mean, if we still have that, that kind of work ethic that you have to earn your whipped cream, that it's not something you're just kind of entitled to. And I know my family used to um, pass the bowl around. So there'd be a whisk and the cream in the bowl and everybody would, everybody would take a turn. So every, you know, once it was done, it had been a communal effort. Everybody got a share. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think there's also mm-hmm. a superstition about some of these things, too. Uh, yes. Nancy Nancy wrote about a whole bunch of things that she's she's moved from Connecticut to Massachusetts to Illinois to Washington State and back to Connecticut, and she's brought these lemon juicers and something called an OJ squeeter. I don't even know what that could be, although I did look mm-hmm. it up. Um, and she doesn't use them, but I think it's, like, scary to throw something
3: out.
0: Yes, right, because you never know, and where will you find it? Like, the, the poor man who was in search of the peeler with a brush on the end, which, you know, it may never really have existed. It might have been something that he he sort of put together from memory. Um, but you think, oh, no, you know, these things go in and out of fashion so so quickly, maybe I won't be able to get it again when I really need it. And if you have ever been in a house where you needed to make a whole bunch of like mojitos and you realized you didn't have a lime squeezer? It happened to me. It's the worst.
2: (laughs) Yeah, actually, I just did buy uh, some kind of lemon and lime lime squeezer. And not because I was making mojitos, but like if you don't have one, you get annoyed.
0: And you can't have your drink. It's terrible. You have to squeeze them with a fork and it takes too long.
2: Yes. Well, that would be a good incentive right there. Uh, Well, listen, this is just I I don't know. I find this stuff really fascinating. And as we I think both find it kind of moving as well. Uh, (laughs) Megan Elias is a historian, director of food studies program, associate professor at Boston University. I think I know which book you're working on. I don't know when it's due, but I if it's going to be the history of the hospitality industry, I would like you to come back and talk about that.
0: Oh, I'd love to. Thank you.
2: All right, we'll take a little break right now. We're going to ask you to support this um, this show and this station. We're in one of those weeks. This will be a quick break. It's three minutes. If you would consider making the call, it helps our show. If we could prove that you love it enough to maybe make a pledge. <laughs> And we're back, and we have to thank uh, uh, Kat Pastor, who is our technical producer today. Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. She produced this episode as well. Uh, We are going to now talk to Corinne Minot, uh, a writer, editor, consultant, and producer. She's the author of Tools for Food, The Objects That Influence How and What We Eat. Uh, Corinne Minot, uh, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So we began with this UGov survey, uh, which David Montgomery had commissioned, and it didn't seem as though there was, although there were things that maybe 90% of households had, but maybe not things that were truly universal. I, I know that your research suggests that at least there are certain concepts, kitchen tool concepts that seem to cross from culture to culture. You want to mention a couple of those?
3: Absolutely. I mean, firstly, I'll say, you know, it can be really simple too. If you have a knife, a chopping board, a pot, a bowl, you know, you can do pretty much anything. But there are some universal things that we all kind of do if you look historically across cultures and in contemporary culture, for example, the mortar and pestle. So it comes in many materials in wood, it's used to grind grains in Africa and Asia. Then you go to Italy and you've got it made out of marble and you can make pesto. It's made out of granite to grind spices for curries in in South Asia. And then you have in Japan, the suribachi, which has grooves in it, and you grind sesame seeds and make other sauces. So the thing is the same. The action is the same, but it's a different vernacular material. It's a different way of cooking a certain cuisine with certain ingredients. It applies to a grater as well, you know, the French great heart cheese, and that's where that came from. But in Asia, you're, gr- you're grating ginger or wasabi. Um, you can be grating root vegetables and different materials, such as ceramic, metal, and many other things. So there are universal objects, and that's what really fascinates me because there is so much that brings us together, but then we are unique in our cultures. But, you know, there's a lot of the similar actions that we do in cooking.
2: I think, you know, your research also suggests obviously there are things that kind of come and go. And I'm sure 100 years from now, as I solicited testimony from people on social media, for example, Julie wrote, after my grandmother passed away, I saved this from going to Goodwill, the kitchen Strains, drains, beats, blends, whips and mixes – best of all, it reminds me of my grandmother. Um, when I looked at the picture of it, it was a very unprepossessing thing. Uh, but, you know, someday, some version, future version of Korean Minot be, may be writing about the kitchen majig, because this, these things have their moments, right?
3: They do. I mean, I have to say that I didn't really do gadgets. And I, I made specifically in my book a kind of exclusion exclusion rule of not to have gadgets because it gets a bit complicated when you go into electrical appliances and a lot all of the many 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 gadgets so i did try to exclude that and in here i tried to include more of what were iconic or long-standing objects that will stand the test of time and have stood the test of time and that are found across the world, gadgets are are complicated. Yeah, I think that they will live a life in many instances and and die a death. I mean, as you say, things passed down from your grandmother, those objects, you know, those long lasting cast iron pans or ones that have a nostalgic value to them are much more interesting to me. And I can give you an example, actually, in Japanese culture, um, there's an object called the Shimoji, which is a, um, a rice paddle scooper. And in Japanese culture, when household management was transferred from the mother to the daughter or daughter-in-law, the mother would pass on her shimoji as a symbol of the transference of that sort of role to um, the next person so it was taking it on. So, yeah, there's objects that have a, a bunch more meaning within them than, than all of these kind of throwaway gadgets.
2: I think there's also there's some basic impulses to find a thing, a tool that's really a multi-use tool. Um, Actually, in the YouGov study, it turned out 35% of American households contain a spork. Um, But there's things much more elaborate than a spork. Um, One of them was Thayer's universal tool, which is a very alarming looking thing. (laughs) But, But that's an example of what people really wanted to have a thing that did lots of things.
3: Exactly. I mean, this tool is crazy. You can see it on the the back cover of my book. It's from 1881, and it's post-industrial revolution. You know, people are inventing loads of stuff. And this object, which looks like a knuckle duster, basically, and you can kind of hold it that way, it lifted lids, it lifted pots, you could put hot pots on it like a trivet, it could tenderize meat, it could cramp pies, open bottles. So, yeah, a very strange looking and very interesting object about all of the innovation that was happening in humanity at the time. But, you know, it's also very linked to domestic shifts in the kitchen. So the transferring of maybe having staff who were doing the cooking for you into the domestic work being done by yourself. Then if you fast forward to the mid 20th century, you know, it was all about time. And the modern man and the modern woman needed, uh time saving objects and time space saving objects too. So if you could combine in one object doing many functions, you're saving space, you're saving time for your new modern life.
2: But I think maybe there might have been another iteration where, because of other time-saving devices and things like that, people have a little bit more time to cook or they just want to spend a little bit more time cooking. There's, as I said in the previous segment, of course, a lot of cooking shows that you can watch. And it seems to me that some of the tr- the um, more traditionally professional tools – are winding up in domestic kitchens as I was once again polling people. Uh, bench I had to look up what a bench scraper is. I, I cook a lot of stuff, but I don't really bake. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a bench scraper, there are tools like that that probably would have been in professional kitchens almost only 25 years ago. But now everybody's kind of a master chef.
3: Absolutely. I mean, and that's a really interesting shift because you you had all this kind of resistance to that kitchen time. And now because, you know, our food systems have become so industrialized, it's really amazing that some people are really getting more into their food, wondering where it's coming from, taking care of how they're cooking and what they're cooking with and having objects like the the bench scraper, the dough scraper um, in their kitchen so, so that they can spend that time doing it. And that's something that I actually kind of wished from my book is that by highlighting this design, highlighting these objects that carry so much within them just in terms of what they say about our history and design and culture, to kind of reconnect people to preparing food and thinking about where it comes from, you know, and yeah, just spending more time with that and thinking about it more, which people are doing now, but there's different types of people, you know, there's a wide gamut of people and in, in how much they're engaged with their food.
2: So uh, I'm sure you don't get through any interviews being asked about this, but it's on my mind because I just took my dog to the vet and I came back and I looked at him and I said, really, you should be doing something useful here rather than just running around having fun all day long and then sleeping the rest of the time. So in the 1600s, they came up with an idea to make uh, like a rotisserie something, some kind of meat on a spit, right, and get the dog to turn the spit
3: yep that's right um so they had yeah there was a whole gamut of uh mechanical spits and you know people doing it with their hand but then they invented one which basically was like a hamster wheel and it had a dog in it and the this mechanical aspect of the spit that was turning the meat was kind of built into the wall you can still visit a pub in the uk where i live that still has one of these that you can see of course it's not in use but interestingly this object was something that spurred on the founding of the rspca in the united states so the organization for the protection of animals so you know Everything is wrapped up with, like, such an interesting history. And so after, you know, people saying that dogs were being used to run the rotisserie, they said, no way, this isn't okay. And, you know, they started that organization. But, yeah, I mean, there's so many amazingly interesting objects that are related to the preparation of our food from the beginning of time until now, for sure.
2: I I think uh, my understanding is you're a little bit more of a minimalist. You don't have to buy every single gadget. I have, like, a lot of different things to do with garlic, you know? And I saw one the other day that looked like a vampire and I thought about maybe getting that too. Uh, But truly, you don't really need that many things in your kitchen, right?
3: That's right. I mean, yeah, as I kind of said in the beginning, a knife, chopping board, pot, bowl, spoon, you know, if you can mix, you can chop it up so that you can cook it properly that's, you can do a lot with that. I mean, the garlic press thing, the jury is out on that. There's a lot of chefs that, you know, say no way, no garlic press. And there is some science involved there too, in terms of the finer garlic is chopped or or crushed, it releases more of the chemical that makes it more garlicky. So some people say no way, garlic press. And some people, you know, think it's okay, but you know, of course you can do it with a knife, but, (laughs) (laughs) but garlic presses can be very useful.
2: Um, All right. We probably have to stop there, but uh, Corin, the book is terrific. We're just scratching the surface uh, of what's out there. Uh, If you want to learn about chestnut pans from France or a Hungarian object made of goose feathers, uh, you are going to have to get this book. Uh, It's called Tools for Food, the Objects that Influence How and What We Eat. We're going to start wrapping up right now. We do want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, We are going to ask you one more time if you'd be willing to support the station and the show by making a pledge. So when those nice people talk to you, please. Please consider that Mother's Doors
3: hey. Make maneuvers yeah. think I'm mother store Mother Story hey. with some cogers Gravy with your mama in the kitchen, mother store, mother store, mother store, head the door, Mother store, keep a cover, mother store. I think I'm mother store, mother store, mother store, keep a cober, while the store, gravy with your mama in the kitchen, mother store. Think I'm Mother Stewart? Mother Stewart, Mother store. store I keep a by Mother Stewart, gravy with your mama in the kitchen, Mother Stewart.